Joshua. And thank you, Anita. Um, what, a, what a testimony of the pursuing grace of God across a lifetime, right? Um, I just, I'm loving this season we're in of sharing our stories together, um, of sharing the, the goodness of how God has, has graciously pursued people, Graci- the mask, graciously cared for people. Woo! Hit me in the back. There we go. Um, graciously looked after us and drawn us in. Um, it's always grace. Uh, not one of our stories do you hear that goes, you know, I was, I was good enough and I, I got in and I convinced God to accept me. Uh, it's always <laughs> he pursued me. I, I, was, I was just leaving the church and he put it on someone's heart to come to me and, and draw me back in. And yeah, it's, it's just such a beautiful thing. Hey, we're in, uh, we're in the first of the mountaintop moments of our new series here um, called The Peaks. Uh, and in case you missed it last week, this is a series where we're moving through the big story of the Bible. Uh, from creation uh, through to uh, the fall and then on to redemption in Jesus. And then finally through to the restoration at the end, so a four-part story, if you will, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Uh, it's, it's the big story that every other story echoes. And if you want to hear that introduced, feel free to go back and listen to last week's service, which may or may not be on the internet yet. Um, when you raise the question of God with people, actually, let me just cut myself in the middle of a sentence there and pray, because prayer is super-duper important. Um, God. We pray a prayer of thanks that in your word you show us who you are, you show us your goodness, your grace, and you show us who we are and how to live in this world. We pray that today that's what you would do, that, that you would be glorified, we would be instructed, that we would find greater joy in who you are and in what you're doing, and that we would live as your people in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me start that sentence again. When you raise the question of God with someone, sometimes you get the response, and and I've run into this a couple of times, how could you believe in a God who would create such an evil world? Um, There's been people people famously say, you know, Stephen Fry had a a popular video of it a while back, where he's, you know, the question was, if God was real and you went and saw him, what would you say? And he said, I'd say, how dare you? How dare you create such an evil, awful world? A world with cancer with pain, with child loss, with tsunamis. How could you believe in a God who created that? Well, today we're stepping into just uh, one day of looking at the first moment of the story of God, and that's the creation. Uh, Creation sets the scene for all of human history. It tells us who the main character of history is. Uh, It tells us what the world is meant to be like, and it tells us who we are meant to be. And the picture we get is not one of tsunamis and terminal terminal illness, but one of a a perfectly joyful world with, with a humanity who has perfect identity and perfect purpose, and with it all centered under the rule of the one who makes it perfect, makes it all so good under under God. And before we get into it, I just wanted to 
note that today, uh, you know, we, we've kind of mentioned that this week was going to be our creation sermon, and I'm not going to be speaking directly to questions of kind of science and evolution and young earth creationism, at least not at any length, um, uh, because they're not what this text is primarily about. That's, that's the simple reason. Um, you know, I'm, and and, and to, as an act of appeasement, I'm going to lay my cards on the table at the start there and then just move on from it. And anyone who's got beef wants to come and have a chat to me afterwards can feel so welcome to do so. Um, but, you know, in the same way that if you got up to the, the crucifixion of Jesus and you've just preached a sermon on whether it literally happened or not, you've kind of missed the point of why it happened. Uh, that's, that's the same kind of mentality we're approaching this with. And so, you know... Um, cards on the table, now, I read Genesis 1 and 2 as a literal account of literal history. Um, I just think it's the easiest way to read it, and, and I respect the Bible when it says that this is what happens, and I think in the context of the whole of Genesis, which is a historical book, it just makes sense. Uh, if you want to have a chat to me about that afterwards, you go on right ahead. We'll, we'll have a good chat. Uh, I'll be more than open to any disagreeing positions. Um, but moving ahead, um, there's a danger of just sitting down to preach just on creation and not getting up to Genesis 3, you know, not getting up to, if you don't know, Genesis 3 is the bit where the fall happens, where evil comes into the world. Um, we, we get to that next week, by the way. We are going to cover that. Uh, but the danger is that Genesis 2, one, uh, Genesis 1 to 2, rather, presents a world that we are deeply unfamiliar with. We've never lived in it. Genesis presents God creating a world that is good, and a humanity that is good, and everything is good. And if you were a really trusting person, you might hear me preach a sermon on Genesis 1 to 2 and, and go, well, everything's good, wonderful, we live in a perfect world. And you might walk out the door striding confidently into that perfect world, and you might stride onto that perfect road out there, and you might run into something imperfect, or rather something imperfect might run into you. Uh, and so please, uh, do, do take in mind, this is part one. Um, but creation is actually still, even though it's not the world that we live in, it's important, it's vitally important that we wrap our heads around what happens here. Creation lays the framework for everything that follows after it. Creation lays out the bare basics of the biblical worldview. Um, it, it, it does establish truths and realities that either continue on into the fallen world or are changed as they continue on into the fallen world or that just give us vital insight into what good is, what we should be aiming for, what we should be living for, what we are hoping to get back to in a sense. So as we come to this, do notice, you know, feel free to feel the tension uh, of all the ways that creation, the creation that God made, just sits in complete discontinuity with what you see around you. And come back next week to find out why. But the first thing I want us to focus on is that God, the good creator, creates a creation which is good. Um, whip open to Genesis chapter 1 if you haven't already. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a big old stack of them back there on a shelf. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you're more than welcome to keep one of those. It's on page uh, 1, I presume. At least someone laughed. Um, yeah, God, the good creator, creates a creation which is good. Last week, uh, we talked about how everyone has a story that we live in, that we see ourselves in, whether we acknowledge it or not. And that the story you see yourself in 
always has a, a good beginning and, and that that reflects the good beginning of the big story, God's big story. But, but what sets God's good beginning apart from my good beginning and, and anyone else's good beginning is that his is genuinely in every way good. The creation account lays out uh, this repetitive, rhythmic uh, pattern of the goodness of what God made. Uh, it follows a pattern for every day of the creation account. It goes, you know, God creates something by speaking. So it says, God says, let there be light and, and sky and oceans and land and plants, the sun, the moon, the stars, fish and birds, animals. And at the end of each day, it says, and God saw that it was good. And there's two things that we, that we should take from that. Okay, First, Clearly what's being described here doesn't connect with the world that we live in. We've kind of already referenced this. Clearly the goodness of the original creation doesn't correlate with the brokenness of the world that you and I live in. If you haven't run into that, then please come to me afterwards, actually. That would be genuinely surprising. Um, the world God created was an intentionally perfect world. No cancer, no virus, no hate, no evil, no death, no sorrow, no disaster. It was all good. And that's not the world that we live in. And we'll come back to, to kind of why that is next week. But, but the second thing that we need to take from this, uh, th from the days of creation, as God is creating the world, uh, he lays it, we, we find a fundamental reality of the Bible being laid down for us, of the big story of the Bible. And that is that God's story is God's story. He is both the main character and the author of this story. I suppose in that sense, it's autobiographical. Um, at every point in the creation narrative, God is the active character, the main character, bringing everything else into being. Everything else sits secondary to the one who creates it. In fact, our tendency is to read Genesis chapter 1 uh, kind of as the story of how we and this world came about uh, as the primary focus of it. Uh, the story of humanity's origins is, is what we love to look at most there. And that's definitely in there, don't get me wrong. But, but actually, do you notice that the seven-day creation narrative, it reaches a climactic note when humanity is created, but, but the, f the final act of the creation week is not an act of humanity. In fact, we don't do anything in the creation week, but the final act is God stepping into his rest. And the fact that God is the, the main character of the story is a thing that remains true across the entire Bible narrative and across all of history and across our lives. And it's important to say because we tend to approach this life uh, and this world like we're the main character. And, and God's, God's just the supporting role to my life and my goals and my ends. You know, God really just wants to give you a better life, make your life a little bit better, or give you your best life now, or he just wants to bring you to heaven, or he just wants to set you free. And some of those things, I should differentiate it, some of those things are things that God does do for those who trust in Jesus. Don't get me wrong, but from the biblical worldview, it's not primarily about us. It's about him. It's fundamental to the Bible's perspective of the world. History is his story, although that's not actually where the origin of that word comes from, it must be said. God is not just there as an aid to you and me having a better life. 
He is creator. He is king. And everything that exists, exists to reveal that he is glorious, to reveal something about him. This reality continues throughout the Bible, like I said. So, you know, to give you a couple of examples, when we get up to Exodus and God delivers Israel from Egypt, the words that are repeated over and over again are, so that you may know that I am the Lord. God's not just doing this thing so that Israel can have a bit of land to live in. He's doing it so that they will know him because he's at the center of the story. When they pass through the Red Sea and the the Red Sea swallows up the Egyptians, Moses writes, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord. It's about him. It's about revealing him. When we get up to Jesus entering the story, we might be tempted then to think, you know, this guy's just come for us, right? This, is, this bit's essentially about us. He's the hero, he's the saviour, but, but he's the saviour because we're so important and we need to be saved. Uh, and it's absolutely true that at the deepest level, Jesus is everything that we need. We find it fulfilled in him and he did come into this world to save us. But what we need is not a God who will show us that it's all about me, What we need is to see that it's actually all about him. And so Paul tells us in his letters, you know, in Romans, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And in Colossians, all things were created through him and for him, through Jesus and for Jesus, he's saying there, which means that he is both the origin and the goal of the story. And when we see the throne room of God in Revelation, you know, the, the curtains of heaven and of eternity are pulled back and we see God's throne room. We catch a glimpse of these eternal truths. And who's sitting on the throne? I'll tell you who's not sitting on the throne. Me. And everyone said hallelujah, right? <laughs> at the center of the story is God at every point. And it's vital because one of the things that causes so much pain in this world and brokenness and evil and suffering is... Uh, you know, and we'll get to this in more detail next week again, uh, is people who see a world that revolves around us, around me, where in their hearts they are enthroned or I am enthroned, a world where I am the most important, the main character of it all. And that breaks us and it breaks the world around us because it isn't true and it's not what we were made for. You know, ignoring altogether the idea that, you know, even if you take this many people, what have we got, 50 people here, and if we were all king, put two monarchs in a room together and say both of you rule at the same time, it doesn't work out. That's how wars start. But it's just not how the world was made. It's not what we were made for. We're stepping out of the creation purpose that we were given to give us joy. And I'm kind of of cutting into the end of my sermon there. but, But this is instructive for how we live, isn't it? If your life is all about you, then you've, you've missed the point of life, of finding full life and joyful life. If it's all about a bigger business or a, or a bigger house or a more comfortable life centred around a more comfortable chair, it's amazing how much you can spend on a chair, isn't it? But if those, are, if those are your focus, if those are your goals, if those are the things that work out day to day in your life as the things that take priority, then you've missed the point. Our lives should center on getting to know our creator better. 
Our lives should centre on him and living in relationship with him and everything else should be secondary to that. But then, if, God, if God's the main character, right, we might ask the question, what about us? You know, really, if the story isn't about us, why read it? Um, sounds a bit egotistical when I say it out loud. Um, the answer is that although the Bible is first, foremost, and always about God, as we encounter the one true story of the one true God, we do find out who we are there. In fact, God calls us into his story and to being a part of his story. And in the creation of humanity, we see that humanity is created with good identity and with good purpose and under God's good rule. And again, these verses, they're one of those parts of scripture that you can just go as deep as you want on. Um, They are the the never-ending lap pool in that sense that just gets the deep end, just keeps getting deeper. I suppose the easy analogy would have been the ocean now that I think about it. But, but I do think that these three aspects here stand out as, as pivotal to our creation. We are made with good identity, good purpose, and under God's good rule. And, and again, we have to say that what we see here, the humanity that we see created here, doesn't correlate, doesn't connect directly with the humanity that we see today. Identity, purpose, and rule are all things that people actually long for we strive to find our identity go on amazon sometime and type in the word identity and see how many books come up i did sixty thousand. in case you're wondering we ache for a life of genuine meaning and purpose and we we generally try to seek out rule by replacing the great good rule of god with the deeply inadequate rule of me not you wouldn't replace it with me understand you'd replace it with you but here in Genesis, we see where our true identity is found. We see where our good purpose is found. We find a purposeful life here. And we find a rule which is a joy to live under. So first, read this with me. God says this. Um, this is from the start-ish of verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, little aside here, and we can't do too many of them today because like I said, they're never in that pool. Uh, little aside, the us in that sentence is actually somewhat significant. In the let us create, it reminds us of something important, which is that creation isn't just an act of God the Father. We don't have a Bible that is God the Father, God the Father, God the Father. Surprise, there's a spirit and son. Uh, the full trinity of God is active in the creation week and in creating everything. You know, we see that affirmed like at the, at the start of this narrative. We have the spirit of God, the personal presence of God, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. And the New Testament expands on this, like we've already referenced and says that everything was created through Jesus. He is active in creation. We get that in, in John chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1, among other places, if you want to look it up. But, but that's not the point of the text. That's just an important aside. The point of the text is that we are created in the image of God and here we find our good identity. Here we find who we are and who we're meant to be. Now, what does it mean to be created 
in the image of God. After his likeness. And that's not as simple as it might sound if this is your first time running into that question. Lots of ink, more recently, lots of toner, has been spilled over this question. It's, it's, It's not as simple as saying, well, you know, we look like him because God is spirit. We have clear indications in the Bible that God does not have a physical appearance. You know, when Jesus came down, he took on flesh, but he became like man. That's his manness there, not his godness on display in his physical form. So to be in the image of God is more than just to look physically like him. And I want to boil this down to something as simple and as practical, as useful as I can without diluting it. Uh, so, so here's my crack at what it means to be in the image of God. And we're gonna, I'm going to say it, and then we're going to unpack it. So to be made in the image of God means to be created in a relationship of sonship with God and a relationship of servant kingship with the creation and so to reveal in a special way what God is like. Let me say it again because that was, that was long for a short explanation. To be made in the image of God means to be created in relationship of sonship with God, in a relationship of servant kingship with creation, and, in, and to, so to reveal in a special way what God is like. So kind of three parts to it, right? Sonship, which is the most central part of what it means to be in the image of God. Servant kingship, which is the immediate outworking of being created in the image of God. And revelation, revealing the identity of God, which is the intention of the image of God. Let's let's pull that apart just a little. So the first aspect of this image of God thing is that we are created with with a relationship of sonship with God. And if you were to boil down the whole identity question, this would be where you'd find it, I think. And we might look at that and look at this text and go, hang on, John, he doesn't say anything about sonship there. Where's that in the text? And, and what's interesting is, is if you flick, like if you have a Bible there, you flick a couple of pages forward to Genesis chapter 5. And it says there, uh, Genesis chapter 5 verse 1 to 2 looks back, like it says, these are the generations of Adam. And the first generation that it mentions is, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then verse 3 says, Uh, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, listen to this language, listen to what this is echoing, in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. He fathered a son in his own likeness after his own image. And that comes immediately after that reference back to the creation of Adam, like it's a second generation, like it's the generational step. In fact, in the ancient Near East, it was actually really common and it would have been much more easy for you to read this and see sonship in it if you lived back then, I believe. Because kings in the ancient Near East very regularly would identify themselves as being the image of a god because they were the son of a god. It was kind of one of their grabs at authority. And, you know, we're talking false gods there. But that was the, the language, the language set that would have been used for that. And it would have been familiar to the readers of this originally. And Luke even, even picks this idea up, doesn't he? In Luke chapter 3, when he gives his genealogy of Jesus, 
you know, if you remember it, it's that bit that you tend to skip over. Uh, but <laughs> it's the son ofs, you know. Joseph, uh, sorry, Jesus, the son as was supposed of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of 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 so on and so forth, the son of Adam, the son of God is how he finishes his genealogy. Now, this isn't son in the same way that Jesus is the son because Jesus is God the son. But inherent to being created in the image of God is this idea that we are created to live in relationship with God as sons. And so we live in relationship with him and are like him, like a son is like a father, functions like their father, shows something of their father and how they live because we are his children. And by the way, this isn't, you might be hearing this, ladies in particular, and going, ah, oh, gosh, I thought it was for all of us. Uh, but this is actually not just for the guys. That's super clear because it says, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And in fact, the only thing in the entire creation narrative of Genesis 1 to 2 that gets called not good in a big passage of things that are good is when there isn't a woman next to the man's side. You know, God sees that the man is alone. And he says it's not good in Genesis 2, that he should be alone. So the image uh, and therefore the relationship of sonship is not gender-specific. In fact, you can well argue that it's only best represented when there are men and women present. And, and if that's still a struggle for any of the ladies here to, to think of yourself in a relationship of sonship, remember that us blokes, we have to be the bride of Christ. So, you know, there's that. But we're created then for this special, close relationship with God. But then that sonship has a result. Uh, we are to be the servant kings of creation. And this is super evident in the passage. God says, let them have dominion. And then he lists everything that exists and says, let them have dominion over that. And this isn't dominion or kingship like the world practices kingship and dominion, kind of domineering. Uh, and we know that because in Genesis 2, which expands on the creation narrative, the creation of humanity, we see it work out in detail as man is created and placed in a garden to cultivate it, to work it and to keep it and to grow it. So as God is the creator and ruler of creation in goodness, creating a world that is good and perfect, so humanity are to cultivate and to grow what is good. And we are to rule in caring for the creation. And in this way, we reveal to the world what God is like in a special way as his, as his children. And I say in a special way because, in one sense, everything reveals what God is like. You know, Paul says over in Romans that God's eternal power and divine nature have been on display since the beginning in the things that were created. So you can, you can walk outside at night and you can look up at the stars and, you know, go, wow. That is so immense. And you can know, actually, by the benefits of modern astronomy, that, uh, that there is you know, trillions more that we can't see. Um, probably more than trillions, probably trillions of trillions. That's my wild stab at a number. And you can look at that and you can go, wow, the person who made this must be all-powerful. Like, I couldn't make one. Heck, I struggled to make a decent campfire.
but then but we had God as father. You know, the stars don't have a relationship of father-son with God. And so we rule out of his character. We rule in a loving, gracious, kind, merciful, just way that shows what God is like. That's what we're created for. And because he is our father, we know that we're provided for and we're loved and cared for. And so we can do those things. We can love and we can care and we can provide because we know that everything we need is given to us by our father. So our creational identity is sons and servant kings, the revealers of God. But then we have a, a purpose given to us, not just an identity. It's really a, a mandate is given to us, is the word they use. Uh, after God has created humanity, humanity, he says, multiply and fill the earth. And you notice, this isn't just a command to go have lots of babies. That's certainly part of it. It's not just a call to fill the earth with humanity. But in, in context, this is a call to fill up the earth with the revealed image of God. To fill it with, with sons and servant kings who express God's goodness in every corner of the earth. It's a call to spread the border of the Garden of Eden until the special sanctuary of God fills the whole earth, and so the whole earth is filled with what God is like. So we're created with this good identity, the image of God, with good purpose to fill the creation with the image of God, and finally we're created under his good rule. And, and there are, are two things that I want to point to you about the rule of God. First, in the Garden of Eden, God gives one command for humanity to follow. You're probably familiar with this bit. It's a famous part of the Bible. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you'll die. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. Let's be real. That's not the biggest ask anyone's ever given to anyone. Don't eat of this one tree. Every other tree, fine. Apples like you have never tasted in your life. Pears that are more glorious than they have ever seen, that could, would ever seem again throughout the whole creation. Mangoes, exactly as they are today, because you can't improve a mango. Um, unless you get one of those stringy ones, I guess. But, uh, you know, the works. And even better, you know, a tree that will give you life forever, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just one. And, and we'll, we'll look next week at what it means that it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But really what's happening here is we're seeing where humanity are intended to flourish. As those servant kings in this world. And it's under the rule of the great king. And if you hear that and think, yeah, but you know, we have to be servant kings, but he gets to be the, the great king king why isn't he a servant king now just remember that he needs nothing from us and so the entire act of creating the whole world is an act of grace and servanthood by the great king caring for the creation that he's bringing into creation get your head around that but second um, we get the seventh day of creation and the seventh day of creation is so important because the seventh day of creation it does it reminds us of that uh, reality that although we find out who we are in this story God is king in this story it'd be wrong to read Genesis 
2, 1 to 3 and think that God is resting because he's tired, because he's worn out from a hard week's work. You know, we don't get any indication as he's creating the world that God is breaking a sweat. Uh, I can't remember who it was, but there's a famous theologian, one of the old historical ones who goes, you know, God could have done it in seven seconds if he'd wanted to. He chose to do it in seven days. But the language of these verses, it gives us an indication of the purpose of the creation as a whole. You know, lots of commentators will point out that this language is actually the language that was often used in other ancient Near Eastern cultures for the setting up of a temple, where a deity, a false deity, obviously, uh, would be said to have completed their work in setting up the temple, and then they would rest in the temple. You know, their, their presence would come to rest in the temple. And that language of setting up a holy place is really present here when you look at it, right? God blesses the seventh day. God declares it holy. But the point is that God has set up creation for this purpose. You know, God's temple here isn't, isn't a building like the other gods who don't, haven't even been thought up yet. The true God, his creation will be his sanctuary. And notice that the seventh day is left open-ended. Remember that pattern for all the other days? There was morning and there was evening, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day. But the seventh day is left open because God's purpose in creation is ongoing. And because he invites us in to be a part of what he is doing. And so the rest, the rest of God, God's rest, invites us to live in the context of his great purpose, that the earth would be filled with his glory. Now, I suppose in that sense, we're, we're created not just to be kings, but to be priests. Because the priests, the priests were the people in the sanctuary of God who were to bring the presence of God to the world around them, right? To the people around them. And so humanity are created to bring the presence of God to the world, to bring the image of God into the world in his sanctuary. But zooming out now, what have we got? We have a story where God is the main character, the mighty creator, the king of all. We have ourselves as characters called into that story to live with a good identity as children of God who rule creation as servant kings and so reveal to the world what he is like. We're called to live with good purpose, multiplying the image of God and filling creation with his glory. And all of these are things that we're going to see happen again and again in the Bible because this is the purpose that continues on throughout, right? We're called to live under his good rule as the world becomes his sanctuary. And so do you see, we start with a world that is good, but isn't necessarily done. Where, where a garden is planted in Eden and humanity are called with a mandate, go and, and fill the earth with my glory. Humanity had work to do and, and not laborious hard work, but joyful work in living out our purpose and our identity. And although, as we'll, we'll find next week, that all goes off the rail, God's not thwarted in what is being set up here. 
The New Testament tells us that the plan of God from the beginning, the plan of God from the beginning was that Jesus would come, that the Son would be sent into the world, the Son who is a servant king, who is the image of the invisible God, and, and through him, people would again live as sons of God and the image of God would multiply in the world and disciples would be made. And one day at the end of the story, the whole earth would be filled with the image of God, with the glory of God. And that's a good beginning. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for creating us. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you for how good and caring and glorious you have been to us. And thank you, Lord, that you have brought us, if we've believed in Jesus, you have brought us back into line with your story. Through the servant king, through the great son, through the image of God, Jesus, you bring us back into who we're meant to be. We pray, Lord, that we would be multipliers, that we would be people who multiply the image of God in making disciples. And we pray, Lord, that the words of your Bible would sink deep into our hearts and that we would live in your great story. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, I'm 90% sure, stepping into a time of communion directly after.